0: Father God, I thank you so much for this group you have put for us today, Lord. And Lord, you have united us to a body that consists of so many great people, so many great backgrounds, and we just get to celebrate adding more to our number today. And Lord, I thank you that your kindness has been good enough to us that we're able to do things like have membership meetings. We're able to do things like plan out events for people in our church, Lord, that we're able to do things like me here every single Sunday to reflect upon your word and learn from a variety of books and a variety of authors who bring very unique perspectives to the table. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to see your hidden providence and your ordinary providence on display in this book. And even though some passages are challenging to read through here, we know there are lessons always for us. And Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we would have a heart of celebration, a heart of celebration that would lead us to unite with our brothers and sisters in this church. It is in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So we'll be in Esther chapter 9 through the end of the book today. In a lot of ways, it has probably felt for a bit that this book is already over as far as the story goes. We've already seen the downfall of the villain Haman. We've already seen the undoing of those things that have already been done, which is why last time we met, we titled the teaching The Great Reversal. We already see Mordecai lifted to a high place, a place that was previously occupied by Haman. And now he holds power. And now as we ended off in chapter eight, we remember that it was said that in the Persian empire, it was now the Jewish people who were the ones to be feared and were no longer living in fear. And just in case we might have forgotten that switch, our author in the first verse of chapter nine reminds us of what the situation is in not just Susa, the citadel, but in the Persian empire. We see that as we approach the the 12th month on the Jewish calendar, the month of Adar, on the specific 13th day, the day, if you remember that was planned out by Haman to be the day with the eradication of the Jewish people in Persia was to be under full effect. It was on that day that this evil plan was supposed to succeed. But look at verse 1 and, sh- and see what our author shows us about what actually has happened. We see on the 13th day of the same, the king's command and his, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And now the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The great reversal has been fully accomplished. God's people who were lived in fear and threat of their lives, as they had done many times even before this, now live, at least as our author shows us, in not just safety, but privilege and domination. And throughout verses 2 through 10 here, we see a bit of the fallout of what happens from this. We know that Mordecai is a high-ranking official in the Persian court right now. Queen Esther is taking a very adamant role in the fulfillment of the new edict pushed forth by Mordecai that the Jewish people are now permitted to use not just self-defense but retaliation against those who hated them and those who made threats toward them. Now, on the first day here, the 13th in the month of Adar, we see that the immediate fallout from this edict results into immediate action. And when we read, when we read through a bit of what happens here in Esther 9, in, particularly in verses 2 through 16, some of the fallout that happens here is a bit difficult for us to read through on this side of the cross and this side of history. Because what we see as a response to this new position that Mordecai and Esther and their people have is that there is immediate destruction of enemies. On this first day of carrying out this new edict, as our author tells us, we see the elimination of several groups of people. For one, all of Haman's sons, and Haman used to brag about how big his family was, all of Haman's sons are now eliminated. And they're listed out there in detail name by name. And the only reason that our author would name Haman's sons name by name is because he somehow knew James Culver was going to have to read all of them. (laughs) And he really, really wanted James Colbert to have a lot to do that week before, apparently. So he practiced and practiced. But it's not just Haman's sons that are eliminated. We see 500 men in Susa alone are killed. 500 of those who hated the Jewish people are killed that day. Day And the way that our author puts it in the text is that the, the Jews did what they pleased to those who hated them. That was in verse 5 that he mentioned that. And we read through this. This is maybe one of those parts of Scripture that we don't want the world to see sometimes. Because where we sit in history, we look back on these things, and though it was a, uh, not an uncommon practice in the time, this, this kind of mass wars like this, it seems a little barbaric to us, maybe in the moment. It seems a little, by, little like overkill. It seems a little backwards to see people actually killing those who even were their enemies. And I'm not going to stand before you here and justify every single action that every character takes in this story. But there are some things we should understand, unless we just think that Mordecai and Esther are becoming the new dictators of some sort. For one, the nature of the text tells us that when 500 men died that day, we should not have the idea that these were 500 completely innocent bystanders that died that day. For one, as this text is very clear, these are people who hated the Jews and probably already made aggressive actions toward them. These are also not just 500 working men. The nature of the text communicates to us in the original language, these are 500 fighting men. These are soldiers, so to speak, that were taken out on this day. Not that those lives are expendable and don't matter, but it doesn't communicate to us the idea that these are just random people that these, uh, these, these Jews are breaking into the homes and killing. This is not just a mass slaughter that's not guided at all. Also, this is not a nature of just innocent killing because, as we all know, at the end of the day, the people who were the enemies of the Jewish people were not acting in an innocent way because the Jews were living in fear. But the text, as it goes on, gets a little bit harder and harder to really understand. And maybe we're tempted to think there was some overkill here when we get down to verse 11. We come down to verse 11. This is after the first day of this new edict was enacted and 500 were killed in Susa. We see in verse 11 that that very day in Susa the citadel, the number of those killed was reported to King Ahasuerus. And in verse 12, he says this to Queen Esther. In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman. And what then they have done in the rest of the king's provinces. Now, what is your wish, Esther? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request, it shall be fulfilled. And maybe with our modern hopes and hearts, we're hoping that at this moment, Esther is going to say, I want no more, right? This is the end of the violence. This is the end of what has to happen. But spoiler alert, that's not what she says. We go on in verse 13. Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So Esther's not done in her request, and her people are not done. She asks for an extra day for retaliation for her people. And not just that, she wants a message to be communicated. Because she wants the ten sons of Haman hanged on display as Haman was. And at this point, it's very natural for us to think we are officially in overkill at this point. We think, Esther, you're no longer acting out of a divine sense of justice. And now seems you're acting out of pure vengeance and hatred, and bitterness at this point. And here's the reality, church. I cannot be right here today and tell you whether or not that is true. The reason I can't is because our text, as it always does in Esther, gives us no moral evaluation of whether or not what Esther did was right or was wrong. I can stand here today and tell you that on this side of the cross, under our new covenant, we are not called to any kind of holy war or unchecked violence, even towards our enemies. Our Lord Christ made sure of that when he taught us. But at this point of history, in redemptive history... The Lord did oftentimes call for his people to enact his will of retribution and vengeance against those who opposed him. But whether or not Esther is doing this out of that divine justice or whether or not she's doing this out of a sense of vengeance, it's not for us to say because we just don't know. At the end of the day, the point here is that God preserved his people. But as we have seen throughout this book That kind of preservation and planning involves using broken people who do not great things all the time. Regardless, as we see in verses 14 through 16, the acts are carried out the next day also. We see in verse uh, 300 more men are killed in Susa. And back in verse 14, we see that the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. And in verse 16, we now get a perspective on the entire Persian Empire and what happened throughout there. And then we see a massive number. We see 75,000 reported here were killed of the enemies of the Jews. And that number is astronomically high. But don't forget, the Persian Empire is the superpower of the day. We have 127 provinces laid out in this entire empire. There's a lot of people who are living within the Persian Empire. But notice something as you read through this that comes up every single time we have a description of what the actions of the the Jews were towards their enemies. We see this at the end of verse sixteen. You'll also notice this. Notice at the end of verse ten that despite the, the the destruction of life that we see here, there is something that the Jews and their people do not do. They never lay their hands on the plunder. They never lay their hands on material possessions. They don't take houses. They don't take riches for themselves. Now, the reason that's important is because if this was a group of people who just wanted to get rich off expense of life, who just wanted to dominate and rule for themselves and only better themselves at the expense of somebody else, then we would expect them to take some possessions for themselves. But they don't. And the really interesting thing is, is if you go back and read the edict that Mordecai put forth, he specifically allows for the Jews to take plunder if they wanted. But we see here in chapter 9 that they don't. They instead choose to act in the way that that their people were commanded to back during the conquest of Canaan in the time of Joshua. Because in those moments, though Israel took back the promised land and had to destroy life to get it, they never were supposed to take the plunder. That was not for them. Now, sometimes they did, and it resulted in consequences when they did. But it seems here that these people, despite the destruction that was enacted, do not seem bent on doing this only to better themselves. They're not doing it for power or for wealth. If they were, they would have done it for, but they would have taken the plunder. It is also interesting to see in verse 16, when we read it, to see what it is that the Jewish people got from this destruction. Verse 16, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives. Again, not a phrase you would use as somebody who are just dictators and mass aggressors. To defend their lives, and then it goes on to show what it is they got. They got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them without laying hands on the plunder. See, this is not a people who were doing this for their own benefit. They were doing this for their own deliverance and protection. The reality is, though the words here make it seem like the, the, the people of our story are monsters and dictators, maybe what they actually are are people who are trying to defend themselves the only way they can at this point. And for your notes, I have this for us to remember by. The destruction of the enemies of the Jews was not done for power, wealth, or self-glorification. It was done for relief and deliverance. It was not for power, wealth, or self-glorification, but for relief and for deliverance and that church does absolutely matter but we're trying to understand the actions of these people we cannot just write them off as many want to as fanatics as barbarians these are people who are fighting for their relief these are people who had been oppressed for a long time. And now that the tables have turned, they have God's promised relief. And as we also talked about last week, we can't forget, God did not just promise protection for his people. He promised a curse on those who would go after them. And right now, we see the curse falling on the enemies. And at the end of it all, they finally have their relief. And we see that the response to obtaining this relief was a large moment of thanksgiving and celebration. We pick up in verse 17, that on the 13th day of Adar, uh, uh, this was done, all the actions of destruction were done. On the 14th day, they rested. And they made that day a feasting of gladness. And you'll see here in verses uh, 18 through 19, there's an explanation that for some, their day of rest came a day later than those uh, in other places as well. So there are two days here of, of, of different places of celebrating Thanksgiving, of celebrating deliverance. But the point is is that once they obtained their relief and obtained their deliverance, they celebrate with thanksgiving. Something that happens many times in other places in the Old Testament when God does something miraculous for his people. When Moses crossed the Red Sea with those fleeing Egypt, they celebrated and sang songs of praise. When Joshua managed to get his troops back together, they took over Jericho, or they took over the city of Ai, they took over other cities in Canaan, they celebrated with thanksgiving. In the time of the judges, when someone like Deborah comes and frees the captives of God's people from their oppressors, they celebrate, they have a moment of thanksgiving. So in this moment, this is the Jews in Persia's time to celebrate their thanksgiving. And now, as we see in this passage, this celebration was to be one that would be remembered year after year after year. Because Esther and Mordecai in chapter nine make it official that every year on this day in Adar, there would be a celebration reminder of this relief that the Lord gave for them. And this relief is now known as the Jewish holiday of Purim. And church, I did not plan this out. I did not put this in my mind when I started going through Esther, but that celebration of Purim is going to be happening this week. In the month of March, It coincides on Tuesday, I believe, is going to be the first day of the celebration of Purim. This is a holiday that obviously was not instituted by Moses. So like the celebration of Hanukkah, this is not a celebration that you'll find anywhere in those first five books of the law but it is one that is still celebrated and it's still held on to by many of the Jewish and Israelite people. In fact, this was a holiday and a celebration that was clung on to very desperately by those very unfortunate souls who were in concentration camps during the Third Reich of Hitler's rule. It's a very difficult time to hold on to a holiday like this. When you're placed into a position of suffering like that, the only way out that you can see is to have a hope based on a previous deliverance that the Lord gave you. So in those camps, the remembrance of God's deliverance against all odds in the book of Esther and the celebration of Purim was a reminder that there is reason to be thankful and hopeful for the future because of God's previous miraculous deliverance. And as we reflect on this holiday of Purim that we see instituted here in Esther, there are a couple things that I want to bring out about the significance of this holiday. First off, let's talk about why this holiday is named Purim. And we see this in the verses of chapter 9. It's explained that, a reminder of when Haman was casting his plot against Mordecai and his people. In order to decide when he would enact this plot and this edict, he cast Pur, which we know is the name for Lot's. He cast dice, so probably. He cast lots to figure out when the gods would will for him to do this. And he cast his lots. It was the month of Adar that he would enact this plot. And now we're here in this month and we find out that destiny is in the Lord's hands. It's not in the hands of anybody casting lots because Haman's plan has failed. And now this holiday is remembered as Purim. A remembrance of the casting of lots that Haman did to make his edict for this month, which is a great story. I find it honestly hilarious that chose the name this way. Because in many ways, I don't know how to appropriately say this, but in many ways it feels like a giant middle finger to Haman. They named their holiday this day. It's a remembrance of the fact that the Lord is the one who controls destiny. It is not Haman. It is not Lot. It is not anybody who sets themselves against God's people. So the name of Purim reminds us, as I have for your notes, of the effectiveness of God's protection. The effectiveness of God's protection. So now that we know the background of the name of Purim, we look into how it was actually practiced. And in verse 18, we see that on the 13th day and on the 14th, depending upon which day, uh, which part of the Persian empire you you were in, rested on the 15th day, they made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, going to verse 19, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So we see here a part of the celebration of this holiday is celebrating with each other. It is giving good gifts to each other. It's celebrating the fact that there is a people, not just a person, that is preserved. It's a group festivity. And as I have for your notes, the practice of celebrating Purim reminds us of the importance of having a people to celebrate with. And this is why we get overjoyed when we welcome new members into our body. Because what that means for us is we have more people to celebrate our salvation with. We get more people to celebrate Christ with. Now we see the celebration of his holiday a day of gladness and feasting, a day of rejoicing. But in this moment of deliverance, unlike other times when they have been delivered, there is something that we don't see in this story. We don't see in the middle of the celebration, just like in the rest of the book, any mention of thankfulness to the Lord any mention of thankfulness to the God of Israel because the book of Esther is absent from any recognition of it. And for some, when looking back on this event, they would say that for anybody to celebrate this as a kind of holiday would be wrong because it's a purely human holiday with no recognition of the divine. But I'm not convinced, and others with me, that that has to be an application from the story. No one's bound to celebrate any holiday. But also, no one's bound to not celebrate any holiday. And if we think about it, if we pay attention to the holidays that we do celebrate, thinking about things like Christmas and Easter, There's a lot of religious language that we throw into these holidays, but there is no way that we can ignore the commercial and secular parts that have made their ways into these holidays. A lot of man-made things that have been put into it. And even sometimes the religious aspects of these holidays become a little convoluted and not clear about the biblical message. So celebrating Christmas... And the way we do it does mean we celebrate a lot of traditions that don't have divine basis to it. However, year by year, something I absolutely can celebrate still is the fact that Christ became incarnate and delivered us from our sins. I'll celebrate that every year if I can. And I'll celebrate that with traditions. I'll celebrate that with family. When Easter comes around here pretty soon, it doesn't matter to me that Easter now includes a bunch of things like bunnies and eggs and things like that, because I'm here to celebrate the fact that my Lord was risen again against all odds. So I have no qualms with celebrating that holiday or any other chance I get to celebrate the miracle of God's deliverance. So even though we see no religious language at all, no thankfulness towards God in this holiday, we can still look at it as it comes up year by year. You'll see it on your Google calendars. The the, the holiday is still there. And we can think of what happened here in Esther and praise God that he delivers us against all odds, even if we can't see it. And this celebration, year by year, the Jewish people is a highlight of their protection. And we see in chapter 9, throughout the rest of it, that Esther and Mordecai make it an official notice to keep celebrating this holiday. And now, moving on, we come into chapter 10. And chapter 10 is the kind of chapter that when you get to it in your Bible reading plans, you're over the moon because it's three verses. And And people can ask ourselves, why didn't they just make this part of chapter nine? My educated response is, I don't know. I didn't do it, so don't blame me. But chapter 10 starts off, and it almost seems like a very random break from what we've been talking about. Because chapter 10 starts off with this, this informative sentence that Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus is now taxing his people all the way through to the coastlands. And we think, that's great. What does it have to do with anything that we just spoke about? And I think th- there's a couple ways we could take away from this. Uh, I think this is a, a highlight of the fact that King Ahasuerus is still King Ahasuerus and is still doing things for his own benefit, some look at this tax and they think this tax was actually the king's attempt to start to improve his empire by making a tax that he could then use to better resources, better education, and better culture in some ways. Because if you go back to the book of Genesis, when Joseph came to power in Egypt, he did something pretty similar to that. He instituted a tax that was meant to better the lives of his people through resources. However, when we look at the rest of the book of Esther, outside of this one verse, is there really any reason to believe the king was doing this for anybody besides himself? If you don't believe me, Go look at the first chapter of this book and look at how the author describes his home, the king's palace, and the parties he was throwing. That kind of money has to come from somewhere. So I think that a lot of part of this is the king is building more taxes to refuel and replenish his lifestyle. And I think it really is the author showing us that the Persian Empire, at the end of the day, is still the Persian Empire, despite this great deliverance. I mean, Haman's gone and out of the picture. The Jews have a victory here. It's wonderful. But don't forget that Haman couldn't do anything he wanted to do without the king's authority. And though Haman's gone, the king's still there, ready to be manipulated. Which means at some point, there's gonna be more difficulties for at least somebody in the Persian empire. So I put all this together, and for your notes, we see here this point, that at the end of the story, we are reminded that even though God protects, delivers, and provides for his people, the world will stay the same. The world will stay the same. This doesn't stop us from celebrating the miracles that God gives us. When he gives us the opportunities we pray for, when we see friends and family come to Christ, we celebrate these things. When we have victory over a sin, we celebrate these things. We also can't be naive to think that because we have these victories, that means the rest of our lives are now only victories. Even for us, if we see our country and our leadership make a decision that is right for the people, we can't all of a sudden pretend that we can place all of our hope in that leadership in that country because at some point, they will show their true colors, right? Leaders are still the same in that way. And we can't expect those things to change. But we can be hopeful and in chapter 10, the author does leave off with a note of hope because in chapter 10, he comes to verses 2 and 3 to explain that we now have Mordecai there next to the king. Verse 2 starts off talking about the king still, all the acts of his power and might, the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to wish the king advanced to him are they not written in the book of the Chronicles for the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And in there despite the fact the world stays the same because King Ahasuerus is still in power, we see in Mordecai God's common grace to his people. We see that even though the king is still there, Mordecai is there and he will not manipulate the king into the destruction of his people. Mordecai is there and he is beloved because he seeks the welfare of his people. That is God's protection and grace right there. And the reality is, as we come to the end of his book, we see a great miraculous story, but the way that it builds up to where it is, it comes across in such ordinary and common ways. It comes across in simple decisions Simple moments of a king not being able to sleep results in the deliverance of a whole group of people. The simple actions of a very petty man like Haman lead him towards his own ultimate destruction, which he could never, ever see coming. We come to the end of his book. We come to see that Mordecai is now in power, And when we look back and see the path for Mordecai to come into power, it did not come by fire and brimstone raining down from the heaven in some miracle. It came through ordinary ways. So that is the next takeaway for your next point, is that we are also reminded through Mordecai that God protects his people in ordinary ways. And there's a lot of takeaways from this book, church, but if there is something that I want you to always remember about our time through Esther, it's this point. God does work in miracles to preserve his people sometimes. But his providence normally is much more subtle than that. And that teaches us to be a people A faith that God works in the ordinary. We think about what faith is. I think the greatest definition of faith comes from the Bible itself. Surprise, surprise. Um, The greatest definition of faith comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I had this verse up on the PowerPoint for you to read. The author says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Which means, true faith means that we have conviction and assurance in things that are not right before our eyes. And if we only place our faith in miracles to happen, in revivals to happen, And not to say those things can't happen, they certainly can. But if we only place our faith in those things and not in the ordinary everyday events of God, then our faith will be shallow and immature. A mature faith looks into the ordinary day by day to see God's work and to serve him in those moments. So we come to the end of the book of Esther and we look back on the story now. And I want to take a brief look at the characters through Esther and to see what God has shown us through these characters and through these stories. Let's take our main character, Esther. Through the story of Esther, as I have for your notes, we see this that God can use anyone anywhere for his purpose. God can use anyone, anywhere for his purpose. Now Esther, there's a lot we don't know about her. I can't stand here and nobody can before you today and say with confidence that Esther is a believer or isn't a believer. She may have never honored God once in her life. And we certainly can see some of her choices and think that doesn't seem like the choice you would make if you wanted to honor the Lord. But in spite of all that, she is still used. Her role is still prominent in the plan of God. And if we can see Esther being used in this way, there's no reason anybody in this room should doubt whether or not they can truly be used for the Lord. And I speak this especially to what we would call the laity in our church, the, uh, the clergy of the church, the normal attendants, those who maybe doubt your place in the, the church or the kingdom because you don't have the gift of teaching or you don't have the gift of music. And somehow you might think to yourself, that makes me not as important to this church. I'm here to tell you that is utter nonsense you are vital to this church. You are vital to God's kingdom. And just because the Lord has made you who you are and has given you some gifts and not others does not make you a part, uh, not a part of this kingdom. And time and time again, sometimes that reality of not being gifted with the gift of teaching or or whatever it might be, that can be used as a cop-out for people to say, I have no place in this church. You absolutely do. If Esther can be used in the way that she can, how more can you be used for God's promise and protection? We look at the story of Mordecai as well. In a similar point, we say this, that through the story of Mordecai, we see that we can serve God even in the secular world. Through Mordecai, we see that we can serve God even in the secular world. Because Mordecai's great plan, or great part in God's plan, I should say, was his role as the second-in-command to King Ahasuerus. And even though, again, we don't know where Mordecai is at with his belief also, we can still say that even a Christian can serve in a similar capacity to how Mordecai served. He can serve in the world and still glorify the Lord. There was important things to say in that. Obviously, being in the world and serving God in the world means first and foremost that you don't become the world. The way Jesus talked about this is not losing your salt. You are to be salt and light into the world. You are a blessing to the world, and you are different from the world. If you don't look different from the world, but you just adapt your mind, your beliefs, your behaviors to everything that the world does, then you're not becoming salt or light. You're just becoming the world. But working in the world does not mean you lose your opportunity to serve the Lord. You can be a plumber, and you don't have to be a Christian plumber just because you're a Christian, necessarily. You don't have to find the Christian ways to be a plumber. Be a plumber, but do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. There is a way also where somebody can be a politician, And they can be a Christian, but not necessarily have to be whatever the heck in the world a Christian politician even is. There are ways to do these things as Christians, as Christ servers, and not have to find a Christian way just to do our work. It means we don't look like the rest of the world out there, but it does mean that we can serve God even in the secular world we come to this, the character of Haman and we see a hard lesson through his story because through the story of Haman we see that some will serve as objects of God's wrath. Some will serve as objects of God's wrath. Meaning some People, their part to play is they are examples of what happens when we give ourselves over to our idols. And the phrase object of God's wrath is not a phrase that I coined, it's been around for years and years, dating back to the writings of the Apostle Paul. Let me read for you from Romans 9, verses 22 to 24. Paul pontificating says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There are some whose purpose in order to show God's glory and mercy more and more is they serve as vessels of wrath. Now, just as you and I don't know who the chosen of the Lord are, we don't know who the elect are, we also don't know who the objects of wrath are. So we don't ever treat somebody as if we can give up on them because we know they're a vessel of God's wrath. We pray for all. We hope for all that we can have. We hope that all would know Christ, But it does mean that at times, in God's sovereignty, he chooses to show mercy to some, but not to others. We look at the holiday of Purim at the end of this teaching. And in the celebration of Purim, as a half here notes, we see that there will always be times when we must celebrate God's care. Not times when we should just celebrate it, but times where we must celebrate God's care. And even though the story of Purim, the celebration of Purim, is a moment of rejoicing. We can also help to look at it and see something lacking. For one, even though they celebrate this victory, King Ahasuerus is still there. Problems are still there. You think about just for the Jewish people as a people, if you know history, you know their problems did not end here. So it's not a total victory and a total relief. We also know that in the celebration, though they celebrate deliverance, there doesn't seem to any, be any recognition of the deliverer in the middle of that. So the celebration is good and a reminder, but we also know in the grand scheme of redemptive history, it's incomplete. So for your next point in thinking about Purim, in the celebration of Purim, we also see that our greatest celebration has yet to come. Our greatest celebration has yet to come. What Esther and Mordecai did was a great victory. But when I look at the hope of the Old Testament, I'm brought back to Isaiah chapter 57, verses 19 to 21. A promise the Lord makes. He says, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's a promise made for peace for God's people and no peace for those who are his enemies. And in thinking upon that, we recognize that there are moments we experience peace and celebration here. But oftentimes on this side of The cross and the side of heaven, we understand that we still face the fact that we feel more like the wicked in this story, that we're tossed to and fro. And there's no holy war we can wage, there's no fight we can have to give us this peace. But fortunately for us, this peace was already achieved. And we see how it was, as I have up here, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. A simple statement. That God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Because of that, there is peace. Because of that, there is a promise of hope even though on this side of the cross and on this side of eternity, we still face the fact that we don't have that lasting celebration. We can know that through Christ, that hope remains for us. Which gives us all the more reason to still celebrate even when it doesn't look like we have reason to. And that's what I want to leave off of with the book of Esther, is ultimately this book causes us to look at our celebrations. It causes us to look at our celebrations and to ask questions about them. How do we celebrate? Do we celebrate only ever by ourselves or like the characters in our story with a people who have been saved along with us? Or do we maybe serve differently than the people in our story, and give recognition to the deliverer behind deliverance. We also ask why we don't celebrate. What are the reasons why we refrain from celebrating? Because there are times to mourn. There are times for everything, as Ecclesiastes told us. But is the only reason we're not celebrating because our own worlds are not giving us what we want. Do we only celebrate when things go well? Will we get the nice affordable home? Will we get the promise of having a locked and loaded savings account and retirement account for the future? Do we only celebrate when we receive the promise of the family that we hoped for? Do we only celebrate when our health is the way that we always anticipated it was? We can look any point in our life to find reasons to celebrate. Not to ignore pain or to be naive as if it's not there, but to take that pain And to know there is a God who works in a miraculous, yet hidden and ordinary way to deliver us. So this is a call for all of us, I include myself in this, that we need to celebrate more. We need to celebrate together more. Go find your friends and family and get some good food. This is the official pastoral application to go eat good food. What more could you want from a church service? And we find reasons to celebrate because of Christ. And as we celebrate him through the Lord's Supper in this moment, I'll invite the worship team to come up as well as the ushers to begin to hand out the elements. And if you have not yet found the celebration in the peace of Christ, I encourage you to call upon him in this moment. And if you still have not found Christ, we we'll let the elements pass before you as they're handed out. But if you have found Christ, celebrate with us in this Lord's Supper as he has delivered us in a miraculous yet ordinary way.